to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 19th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. The government wants Bannon jailed for six months. Somalia could face its worst famine in half a century. Russia continues targeting Ukrainian energy infrastructure and 13 die in a Russian warplane crash. Mossad is allegedly behind a kidnapping incident in Malaysia. Australia reverses its recognition of Jerusalem as the Israeli capital. The Utah Senate debate focuses on January 6th. Abrams and Kemp debate in the Georgia governor race. The Taliban says the U.S. won't support non-state actors. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan dominates by-elections. In our top story, the Department of Justice wants Bannon to serve six months in prison. And here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour. Independent, New York Post, Forbes, and Fox News. The United States Department of Justice, or DOJ, on Monday recommended that Steve Bannon should serve six months in prison and pay a $200,000 fine for defying a congressional subpoena. In a sentencing memorandum filed before U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols for having pursued a, quote, bad faith strategy of defiance and contempt, Barron's attorney asked the judge to release the ex-Trump aide on probation while his guilty verdict is appealed. Bannon was found guilty in July of two counts of contempt of Congress for not sitting for a deposition and not providing documents to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. The DOJ argued that Bannon should get the maximum prison sentence of six months because, quote, a person could have shown no greater contempt than Bannon has, noting the seriousness of failing to help the investigation of the Capitol riots. Former Trump White House adviser Peter Navarro was also charged by the DOJ with contempt of Congress earlier this year. Sentencing for Bannon is scheduled for Friday. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. And here are our narrative spins, beginning with the Democratic narrative from the Pennsylvania Capitol Star. Bannon's latest troubles only show that the walls are closing in on Trump and his allies. Although the wheels of justice turn slowly, they are still turning. The GOP should move away from the MAGA movement as quickly as possible if they have any sense. And the Republican narrative comes from the war room. Despite charges against him, Bannon's strategy of encouraging MAGA supporters to regain control of the GOP from the bottom up could have massive electoral implications for years to come. Undeserved prison time may only bolster Bannon's support with his fan base, and his influence seemingly will not die anytime soon. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. The one on this story says that there is a 90% chance that a member of Trump's inner circle will be sentenced to jail by the year 2023. Eric, on ImproveTheNews.org, there's a a courtroom sketch of this, uh, you know, the Steve Bannon trial. I've always thought that would be a a cool job. If I was, I'm I'm a horrible artist, but if I was, I'd be a courtroom artist. What do you think about that? You know, I think, I think (laughs) stick figures would be great. That's right. You know? Yeah. You know what? If you ever see like on the front page of the New York Times or something, the horrible, crudely drawn stick figure drawing, then I probably, I I got my wish. You you were always good at playing hangman. Yeah, that's true. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The UN reports that Somalia could face the worst famine in half a century. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Yen, CBS, NewsBud, and Reuters. 
As it set a new UNICEF goal of $2 billion, the UN on Tuesday reported that a child is admitted to the hospital every minute for malnutrition in Somalia amid what it says is the nation's worst famine in 50 years. An estimated 7.8 million Somalis, about half the population, are now affected by drought, 213,000 of whom are at risk of famine. 44,000 children were admitted to the hospital for severe acute malnutrition in August alone. In what will be Somalia's second famine in a decade, and is expected to get worse over the winter, the drought has already sparked a mass migration of families who often show up to aid camps too late. UNICEF has treated over 300,000 children for severe acute malnutrition so far this year and delivered its emergency water trucking to 500,000 people in the past three months, with 80% of its funding goal aimed at drought response. UNICEF also says the current situation already looks worse than it did in 2011, a famine from which 250,000 people died in Somalia. The East African nation has suffered four successive failures in its rainy season since the end of 2020, with fears that a fifth failure is currently underway. Scott, thank you for the facts. We have a couple of spins to talk about, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Takedo. While many factors lead to widespread famines such as this, Putin's decision to not only attack Ukraine but bomb Ukrainian grain supplies en route to Africa is at the top of the list. Droughts have historically caused Somalia and others to rely on Eastern European food imports, and now it's facing a preventable tragedy because of Putin's invasion. And Mint Press News brings us the establishment critical narrative. The West, led by the U.S., has been intruding in Somalia for almost 30 years, a fact that's conveniently forgotten when news of a historic famine breaks. Russia didn't cause the displacement, disease, and famine faced by millions of Somalis. The U.S. military's destabilization of the entire country did, starting decades ago. Lots of finger pointing. Yeah, you hear about, they mentioned that uh, 250,000 people died in the famine in 2011, which is, of course, a lot any way you slice it. Yeah. But there was only 8 million people in the country. That's a huge percentage of the it country. It really is, yeah. I didn't know there was that few people in Somalia. I, I was just, I was ignorant of it, but it, it really underlines those numbers. It's horrible. In our next story, as we take a look at the 237th day of the Ukraine conflict, Russia continues targeting Ukrainian energy infrastructure, and 13 are dead in a Russian warplane crash. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, Guardian, and TASS. Russian attacks again pounded energy infrastructure across Ukraine on Tuesday, striking facilities in Kyiv, Dnipro, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Zhytomyr. Preliminary information suggested that at least two people were killed and five were injured in Kyiv, while two people were injured in Zhytomyr. On Twitter, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described the strikes as, quote, another kind of Russian terror attack. He also stated that 30% of Ukraine's power stations have been destroyed since October 10th and added that, as a result, there was, quote, no space left for negotiations with Putin's regime. Meanwhile, further Russian strikes were reported in the regions of Sumy, killing at least five civilians, and Mykolaiv, where one civilian was reportedly killed. Ukrainian officials have also reported that the death toll from a Russian attack on Kyiv on Monday has risen to five people. Elsewhere, after a Russian fighter jet crashed into an apartment complex and sparked a large fire in Yeysk, a port town located in Russian territory close to Crimea and Maripol, local officials reported that 13 people had been killed and that a further 19 had been injured. One of the two pilots could allegedly be seen parachuting to safety after ejecting from the Su-34 warplane. 
Russia's defense ministry has said of the incident that one of the plane's engines caught fire shortly after takeoff during a training mission and that both pilots survived. An investigative committee said on Tuesday that the crash was caused by violations of flight and preparation rules, adding that the black box had been retrieved and that pilots were being questioned. It further stated that a criminal case on the matter has been opened. Meanwhile, at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, Ukraine's state-controlled energy company Enerwatom accused Russia of kidnapping two employees of the facility. Last week, Russia detained the head of the ZNPP, Ihor Murashov, who allegedly confessed to passing information to Ukrainian intelligence before being released. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, have since confirmed that he will not continue in his role at the ZNPP. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-Russia narrative spin on this story coming from the Associated Press. Ukrainians that have so far survived Putin's brutal bombings will soon have to endure another humiliating challenge thanks to Russia's illegal invasion. Surviving the sub-zero temperatures of winter with no heat or electricity, Ukraine must focus on repairing the energy infrastructure targeted by Russian strikes if civilians are to be protected from the deprivation that may lie ahead. And the pro-Russian narrative coming from Newsweek. Russia's response to Ukraine's actions has so far been restrained, but the nation has warned countless times that its patience is not infinite. Moscow's tough response to ongoing terrorist attacks, including the strike on the Crimean Bridge, has been long coming, and the only people to blame for the suffering of Ukraine civilians are the political and military leaders complicit in terror attacks on Russia. We've also got another nerd narrative on this story. It says that there's a 15% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before the year 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thinking about what those people are going to be facing in a a Ukrainian winter with no power or heat, even in here in the United States and in Texas, when the power was out for a short time last year, people were burning furniture, people were, you know, dying, people, it was horrible. Imagine what it's like in Ukraine with no no heat. My goodness. I think we need to start uh, maybe a fundraiser or a movement and call it Eric and Scott's Operation Blanket. Yep. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> that's, I think re- that, that's really that, going to take off, isn't it? That, that will, uh, I think, I think problem solved. Done, done and done. We'll send a few. Now, what was the thing called that you, you, you there was two sleeves. It was a, it was a really oh, dumb. Sn- oh, for, a Snuggie, a Snuggie. A Snuggie. Like that, that. That'll take care of it. All right, yeah. Scott. You know what? Man, we can come up with all sorts that's of right. solutions. Who says we don't have a heart? That's right. Mossad is allegedly behind a kidnapping incident in Malaysia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Middle East Eye, Al Jazeera, and Jerusalem Post. Malaysia's New Straits Times broke a story on Monday suggesting that Israel's national security agency, Mossad, recruited a group of Malaysians to abduct two Palestinian men they believe to be assets of Hamas's Al-Qassam Brigade. The Malaysian team intercepted the two Palestinians on September 28th when the duo, both computer programming experts, were shuttled inside one of two vehicles by four men. The team only abducted one of the Palestinian men, telling the other to keep away. The other man escaped and contacted the Malaysian police. The abducted man was reportedly beaten and then interrogated by suspected Israelis via a video call. The police, after tracing the team's vehicle, determined where the captive was being held and raided the location, freeing him and putting the alleged operatives into custody. Sources suggested that the Malaysian team trained in Europe to carry out the mission. Sources reported that Mossad allegedly recruited a cell of at least 11 Malaysians to find Palestinian activists. Mossad has allegedly conducted multiple targeted assassinations against individuals accused of being associated with Hamas over the past years. Fadi Mohammed al a Palestinian engineer and Hamas member, 
was shot and killed outside a Kuala Lumpur mosque in 2018. Scott, thank you for the facts. And two spins have emerged from this story. We begin with a pro-Palestine spin, courtesy of Al Jazeera. This incident is just another example of how Israel violates international rules and norms to pursue its supposed interests. Malaysia is a sovereign country, and Israel has no right to launch operations against its perceived enemies. Israel must be held accountable for its reckless behavior. And a pro-Israel spin comes from Jerusalem Post. Malaysia, though not officially an enemy state of Israel, does not recognize Tel Aviv, and money from Malaysian charities has been funneled to Hamas in the past. It's well known that Hamas has a strong presence in Malaysia, and Israel has been quite clear that it will target Hamas terrorists anywhere worldwide. There can be no haven for terrorists or their supporters. In our next story, Australia reverses recognition of Jerusalem as the Israeli capital. And here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Sky, Times of Israel, CBS, Al Jazeera, and Wall Street Journal. On Tuesday, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong announced that the new Labour government has reversed former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's 2018 decision to formally recognize West Jerusalem as Israel's capital, saying Jerusalem's status should be resolved through peace negotiations, not unilateral decisions. Wong announced the Labour government was committed to a two-state solution in which Israel and a future Palestinian state coexist in peace and stability adding that Australia's embassy would remain in Tel Aviv, where it has always been. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid slammed Canberra's announcement and expressed deep disappointment over the decision, saying it was the result of short-sighted political considerations. The foreign ministry also summoned Australia's envoy to discuss the revised policy. The foreign ministry reportedly published the decision on its website before the cabinet confirmed the policy change, causing conflicting media reports on Australia's position. Lapid first blamed Australia's policy change on this media confusion. The Palestinian Authority's civil affairs minister, Hussein al-Sheikh, hailed Australia's move and the country's call for a two-state solution, tweeting, quote, that the future of sovereignty over Jerusalem depends on the permanent solution based on international legitimacy. Both Israel and the Palestinians claim Jerusalem as their capital. Jerusalem's status has been a complicating factor for the U.S., which formally recognized it as Israel's capital in 2017, and the world community when trying to broker peace in the Middle East. All right, Haritz brings us this establishment-critical narrative. Besides being a poor policy move that panders to the most drastic parts of Australia's Labour Party, the way the news was delivered is insulting. Approved on a Jewish holiday, the Australian government thought the quiet removal of Jerusalem's status from its website would go unnoticed, a chaotic and unprofessional lack of courtesy. Voice of America gives us a pro-establishment narrative for this story. Australia is firmly committed to a two-state solution, and recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel directly undermines this. Australia's former Prime Minister Morrison's 2018 decision was nothing more than a manipulative attempt to win favor, and the new Labour leadership has rightly reversed this. And there's a nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by November of 2065, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I wish Australia had consulted me on this. I remember way, way back in the day, I changed a uh, relationship status on Facebook, and it didn't go over very well. So you can't just change your website and, and change someone's status. It doesn't work. No, it does not. Was that was that back when you were hanging out with Steve Irwin? No, 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 no. This was Paul Hogan. This was the Paul Hogan days. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> 
Beginning our coverage of the U.S. midterm elections, a Utah Senate debate focuses on the January 6th incident. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Fox News, and Newsweek. During a debate on Monday, Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, and his independent challenger Evan McMullen, a former CIA officer, sparred over Lee's alleged role in efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and extend Donald Trump's presidency. McMullen was formerly in the GOP and is endorsed by Democrats. Lee and McMullen agree on most issues, with the latter supporting limits on abortion, opposing Biden's student debt relief program, and blaming Biden for continued inflation. But when the moderator brought up claims by Trump and others that the 2020 election was rigged, McMullen and Lee traded barbs. Lee replied to a question about who won the 2020 election by saying Biden was, quote, chosen in the only election that matters, the election held by the Electoral College. It was on that basis that I voted to certify the election results on January 6, 2021. McMullen, citing reports that Lee was texting then-Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows after the election, described Lee's efforts to mislead tens of millions of Americans as spurious and criticized the senator's alleged suggestions to present fake electors and reject the actual election results as the most egregious betrayal of our nation's constitution in its history by a U.S. senator. Lee then responded by saying, that's not true. You know that's not true. You, sir, owe me an apology. With less than a month before the November election, Lee is generally favored to retain his seat. Lee and McMullen aren't scheduled to debate again before the vote. Those were the facts. Thank you, Scott. And we do have two spins, beginning with a pro-Trump narrative coming from Federalist. Whether he's buying what the White House January 6th committee is pandering or he's manipulating the facts for his benefit, McMullen has no right to slander Lee. Even nonpartisan reports show Lee was only asking questions about the possibility of Trump remaining in office, not actively pursuing any schemes. This shows how dangerous January 6th rhetoric can be. Contrast that with this left narrative spin from Alternet. The emails Lee sent to Meadows show how dedicated the senator was to the multi-step process the Trump administration tried to execute in order to hang on to power. It's important that the principled, independent McMullen spell out for voters just how much of a willing participant in an attempted coup Lee was between the 2020 election and January 6th. This race is a referendum on democracy itself. Continuing with news about the U.S. midterms, Abrams and Kemp debate at a Georgia governor race. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Newsbud, Spectrum Local, Politico, and Daily Progress. In a 2018 rematch, Republican Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams clashed at a debate on Monday after more than 100,000 people went to the polls on the first day of early voting. Abrams described Kemp's lack of gun control as, quote, dangerous, referring to the continued prevalence of school shootings in the U.S., she stated, quote, these are communities that want to be safe, and we can protect the Second Amendment and second graders. Kemp, meanwhile, focused on going after street gangs, proposing a fresh set of anti-crime laws focusing on increasing mandatory prison sentences for gang members and those recruiting juveniles. The candidates also clashed over Kemp's record during COVID, with the governor touting economic success due to a more rapid reopening, and Abrams citing increased federal support as the reason for economic growth. Kemp also revealed that he would not pursue any new restrictions on abortion and birth control while Abrams accused the governor of having weakened women's rights and, quote, denied women's access to reproductive care. 
Libertarian Party nominee Shane Hazel challenged both candidates over income taxes and other issues and could potentially be a wild card to force a runoff if neither Abrams nor Kemp receive 50% of the vote. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have some more narrative spins on this story. Let's begin with the Democratic narrative from The Guardian. Campaigning to be the first black female governor in American history, Abrams is looking to take one step further from her narrow loss in 2018. Despite her near miss, national Democrats saw and continue to see a promising leader who cannot be counted out with time still to go until Election Day. And we counter that with a Republican narrative, and it's coming from the baffler. Among prominent Republicans, Governor Kemp is the least dependent on Trump. Refusing to submit to Trump's election claims and promoting clean energy conservatism, his strong approval numbers against Abrams can be attributed to his focus on widely popular issues. Kemp may well be the way forward for the GOP. We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says that there's a 14% chance that Stacey Abrams will be elected governor of Georgia in 2022. The Taliban says the U.S. won't support non-state actors. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Econo Times, Middle East Monitor, and Al Jazeera. This week, Taliban sources reportedly told Al Jazeera that the U.S. has agreed not to fund non-state actors in Afghanistan. The commitment was reportedly made when top U.S. officials met with the Taliban on October 8th in Qatar, the first meeting since al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in Kabul by a U.S. drone strike in July. The U.S. delegation at the meeting included CIA Deputy Director David Cohen and State Department Special Representative for Afghanistan Tom West. Abdul Haq Awasa, head of Taliban intelligence, led the Afghan representatives. The two sides reportedly discussed the U.S. disbursement of frozen Afghan funds and the release of an American prisoner currently detained by the Taliban. The Taliban also made public the arrest of American film director Ivor Shearer. A pivotal commitment was the U.S.'s reported assurance not to back any armed groups or non-state actors in Afghanistan. Western-backed Taik armed groups had been continuing to contest Taliban rule. In the meeting, the Taliban derided a U.S. announcement that it would transfer the $3.5 billion in frozen Afghan central bank assets into a Swiss-based trust. The Taliban has previously called this unacceptable and a violation of international norms. Washington indicated that the trust would be governed by an international board of trustees and utilized for debt payments, electricity, food, printing new currency, and other items. Scott, thank you for the facts on this story. We do have three spins emerging, and a pro-establishment narrative is the first one, coming from Carnegie Europe. Maintaining diplomatic relations is a necessary foreign policy for the U.S. and other nations. Speaking with Taliban leadership isn't the same as legitimizing the new regime. And it's only through conversations between the regime and Western governments that respect for human rights can ultimately be restored. Here's an establishment-critical narrative from the United States Institute of Peace. The Taliban has little interest in following through with their diplomatic promises to the U.S. The recent killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri in July reveals this, as Afghanistan was used as a base for transnational terrorism. How can the U.S. have any hope for negotiations if fundamental commitments are ignored? A nerd narrative says that there's a 25% chance that the United States will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before the year 2030, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. We turn our attention to Pakistan as former Prime Minister Imran Khan dominates by-elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Bloomberg, Al Arabia, Dawn, Tribune, and Hindu. 
On Sunday, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan led his party to victory in a set of by-elections that saw him win six out of seven contested National Assembly seats. The seats that were balloted on were some of the eight positions vacated in April when Khan was forced out of office and his political allies were prompted to resign. The results are likely to intensify the former prime minister's calls for early general elections, with Khan arguing that they indicate that he, along with the Tariq E. Saf PTI party he leads, has popular support. According to PTI officials, Khan doesn't intend to take up any of the winning seats. However, he has promised that he will soon announce the date of a planned long march on the capital to pressure the government to schedule a national election earlier than the current date of October 2023. Khan's victory against the ruling multi-party alliance, the Pakistan Democratic Movement, or PDM, comes after PTI's overwhelming victory in July's Punjab by-elections, which saw them secure two of the three contested Punjab assembly seats. The PTI, however, failed to fulfill expectations that they would sweep Sunday's by-elections as the party lost seats from the Multan and Malir districts of Karachi to the ruling coalition. Furthermore, despite massive campaigning from both sides, voter turnout remained low in several constituencies. The former prime minister and his party are also facing legal as well as political challenges. On Monday, Khan was granted interim bail until October 31st by a special court in a case over prohibited funding that was filed against him and other senior party leaders. The politicians stand accused of submitting false affidavits to the Electoral Commission. All right. Thanks, Eric, for those facts. Pakistan Today brings us the establishment critical narrative. The Pakistani people have made it clear that they support Khan and reject the current foreign-imposed government. It's now time for usurpers to concede their failure and comply with the national call for general elections. If they are not given this democratic right, the people of Pakistan are ready to take to the streets. And a pro-establishment narrative coming from the nation. State institutions were used to attack Khan's rivals during his term but he now claims that he had no decision-making power during his tenure and even alleges that he is the one being persecuted. Although these by-elections suggest that Khan's lies and accusations have been successful at retaining his support base, the continuation of PTI power in politics will bring no good to Pakistan. Metaculus is at it again with another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 45% chance that Pakistan will default on its debt in the year 2022. Wait a minute. This year? Yeah, that's coming right up. That is coming right up. (laughs) Our final story, over-the-counter hearing aids are now available in the U.S. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS, TechCrunch, Daily Mail, Scientific American, and NPR Online News. On Monday, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, made hearing aids available over-the-counter, or OTC, a change that makes the devices available to tens of millions of adults with mild to moderate hearing loss without a prescription and at lower prices. The move comes as a result of Biden's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy, issued over the summer. Already, devices are becoming available at retailers for as low as $199, compared to thousands of dollars in the past. With the hearing aid market previously dominated by five companies, Secretary of Health and Human Services Xavier Becerra said, This rule is expected to help us achieve quality, affordable health care access for millions of Americans in need. Biden's executive order came five years after Congress responded to decades of consumer complaints about the cost of hearing aids, ordering the FDA to set rules for eventual OTC sales. The FDA's action on this was delayed by the pandemic. 
With millions of Americans estimated to suffer from some form of hearing loss, adults who believe they have mild to moderate hearing impairment can now skip doctor visits. They can buy hearing aids at stores, including Walmart and other retail outlets. Scott, thank you for the facts. And we do have two spins from this story, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from CNN. This move is a game changer, and Biden's executive order is what pushed it over the finish line. Now, 90% of Americans with hearing loss can get affordable, accessible hearing health care, and the hearing aid industry can become more competitive and innovative. Americans with hearing aids will also improve their physical and mental health. And we wrap things up with a Republican narrative from Daily Wire. While this ruling will help millions of -of hard-of-hearing Americans, there's still some medical risk to buying a hearing device without consulting a professional. Biden's executive order and this ruling also don't put a dent in inflation, so it would be nice if they found a way to lower the prices of everything else, too. Uh, Eric, someone close to me recently, uh, before this ruling, had to get a, a hearing aid, and it was like five or six grand. My goodness. Yeah, so this hopefully this will this bring is everything gonna, down. You're right. This is going to be a game changer. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.